Hello, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. I hope all of you who are U.S.-based are going to have a fabulous Independence Day today. If you've come here via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, head over to officehours.global, our primary web portal, for more information and links about the show. Typically, we have a second-hour guest schedule, but this being a holiday edition, we're going to be up for two hours of general questions. So if uh, you have a question, make sure you get it into our Makana system, and we will vote on those questions, and that's what drives our show. So all that said, let's dive in. Uh, Mitch, what have we got today? Thank you, Bill. Our first in is from Simon Rea in Midlands, UK. Is the panel aware of a program allowing you to take a thumbnail from a video whilst it's still being recorded to? The use case is making a show thumbnail before the show's over. It's easy with YouTube, but Zoom ISO would be a cleaner source. Alex. I think the question is, is whether you're trying to... Sorry? No, no, go ahead. Um, Yeah, I think the question is whether you're trying to do it at a specific time or whether you're trying to do it at a regular time. Are you trying to take lots of thumbnails like every minute or every two minutes or whatever? Or are you trying to hit a button and make that actually happen? Um, What I would probably do if I needed to do to actually just grab something at a certain time, I, I would probably set up a video that is the right size that I want in QuickTime watching it or in YouTube and have that window opened. And then what I would do is I would have a screen capture, you know, just Apple's screen capture um, set up with a, with a set size. And then I just hit record as soon as I, when, it, when it's at the moment that I want, or you record a video, what you're probably gonna end up doing is going, oh, this is the video part that I want. But I think otherwise you're gonna have to go back in the video um, and grab onto that image. I think you're gonna have a hard time grabbing a thumbnail without just going through the video because you're gonna have to find that perfect frame and to find that perfect frame is not going to be something that is as trivial as hitting it at the right time or having it go at a certain frame rate. You'll end up with people's eyes closed or people not in quite the right. So to get the thumbnail that you want, I think you're going to end up reviewing it. Now, having something that, and again, remember with QuickTime, or not with QuickTime, but with YouTube, we have DVR on, so you can just scroll back to it and go. And the frame by frame, I believe, works on QuickTime so you, or on YouTube. So you can, I think, use JFK <laughs> to, to actually go through it or to use the the angle, uh, the num- the the arrows to go frame by frame. So um, so anyway, so you can find those things, but I would, um, but I think that you're going to want to still grab the video. Grabbing a thumbnail from the video, you're probably not going to be able to hit it and get just the frame that you want. Yeah, I usually do it manually, and I, I think Alex's point is well taken. Uh, for me, I'm on a Mac, so Command-Shift-4 will bring up the manual screen capture utility. You drag out a rectangle, and then as long as you hold your mouse button down until a moment you think is correct, so I can normally see they've just blinked, this is a good point, let go of that mouse, and it grabs one and puts it in your uh RAM buffer. So that's the way I do it. I think there are there are screen capture things and things like screencast that'll get you more, but that's the simplest way I think to go and that's how I do it. Let's go on to the next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida asked, is there a USB conference style gooseneck mic with a base for table applications that you can recommend? And Courtney Gooden's gonna help us out. Courtney? I haven't used one lately, but um and there's a plethora of them out there there's lots of them uh that you can scroll through on on uh, you know amazon and youtube uh the audio technica atr 4750 audio technica makes some pretty good microphones so i trust them more than most of these other like junivio or whatever it is usb computer mic for 15 bucks i don't think i'd trust that one 
Uh, MXL also is a known <clears throat> supplier of pretty high quality microphones. They make the AC400. That's a bit more expensive uh, personal USB microphone. The, the Audio-Technica one here uh, has <clears throat> a nice thing. It's a USB-C with an, an adapter on it for USB-A. Uh, so uh, that might work for you. That's that's a couple of suggestions. Jason Bache. I've used um, I've used Shures in the past. They are wireless and considerably more expensive and not USB, but they sound much much better. And Mitch Hill. Uh, keep in mind that you're stuck with USB limitations of about ten feet uh, in most cases. So. Uh, if you need something for a conference room table where you got to go from one end to the other, maybe a couple of times, uh, make sure that whatever device is uh, accepting all those USBs is in the middle of the table or below it so that you have room to get that 10 feet in there. Yeah, and I have most experience with the XLR versions. In fact, a lot of those Goosenex mics comes with XLR just at the end of the stalk, for lack of a better term. Uh, and they go, they're designed to use on desks in a public speaking conference kind of application. That, and you also see them a lot hung uh, above orchestras and things like that. So there's tons of Goosenex style mics in the uh concert and in the public address space to look at, not just kind of the musician space. That might be a, a way to take a look. Courtney, you had a follow-up? Uh, yeah, it just said, the question just said USB conference style gooseneck. I, I wouldn't try using one of those in a conference with multiple microphones, all USB hooked up. Uh, in, in that case, I'd go with like Jason's suggestion, go with the Shure uh, ATX or the other other types of wireless uh, 2.45 gigahertz based uh, wireless digital systems that you can place around the conference table that can also do management of uh, automatic uh, level, you know, auto setting the level. Uh, Dugan style auto level would be good. But no, if you're just using it for a single computer, USB would work fine on a stock, but you might be able to get a nicer one if you put it on an arm. I think about 99% of my microphones are XLR rather than USB, and I didn't see that that clearly, so I mistakenly answered with, go, you go to either. But I'm, that's fascinating. So USB only lasts maybe about 10 feet. I thought it was a digital connection. So what happens after you get past 10 feet? Courtney or anybody else? Uh, yeah, USB, you can extend it up to about, uh, there are 15 or 20 foot extensions that have a repeater on the end. Uh, that get the signal level up. You know, one of the problems is USB uh, provides the 5-volt DC power also to the microphone, especially if it's got any active electronics other than the capsule itself. So the longer you run it, of course, the more voltage drop there is in that 5 volts. So that's why they limit it uh, to, you know, uh, 5 to 10 feet. And then, but I have run USB extensions up to 30 feet uh, plus the length of the cable and the microphone itself. Ah, good to know. Mitchell, you had another thought? Yeah, keep in mind, Andy, we don't know what your particular application is. Um, if it's uh, in front of people, keep in mind that gooseneck mics make a lot of noise when you uh, adjust them. So if you have somebody that's fidgety or wants to adjust that mic in front of their face, it makes a, a nasty little creaking noise when it's being moved. We all know that sound. Alex? Yeah, and I believe that either Rode or Roland, I think, has a new one that they built that had a little gooseneck that was built into it or designed for a gooseneck. So you may want to take a look at those, I mean, or it's part of their little performer, and I just can't remember which company. They're both very competitive in the, hey, you can do a presentation from your office 
kind of tools. I think it might be Rode, but it, but it could be, uh, I think it's the Rode little, the little one, not the Rodecaster, but they have a smaller version that has an XLR in for the mic, but it is a, you know, a kind of a unit that provides USB. Other thing to remember is that you can make USB go a very long way with fiber. It's just very expensive. Um, so you can have 200 feet of USB. It's just that it's, it's an expensive thing to close a door on <laughs> because it's uh, so, you know, a lot of us, and we've gotten USB cables to run about 15 feet with copper. Um, but as Courtney said, it falls off pretty quickly after that. There you go. Let's move to the next question. Got a question about the new OBSBOT UVC to HDMI adapter. Uh, it's a second gen. It promises to be a great solution for outputting UVC to HDMI. Version 1 didn't work great with the 360 camera. I think it's in the uh, remote control capability. Is version 2 going to work? Alex, what do you think? Do you have any experience? So, so Mitchell, you're saying that the UVC is, is so the, the version 2 is promising you UVC transport? Correct. Because the first one definitely did not do that. It just did. Yeah, HDMI they say out. it will. The, yeah, the question is whether it's UVC or whether it's full communication, because the, one of the challenges is that the technically and why we want the SDK, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, but the what what the mini what the um, uh, the link is doing is not uh, necessarily UVC. It's it's a full contact with the ca- with the camera, so it's not a. It can handle UVC control, and you can make requests and do basic operations, pan, tilt, and some basic color. But the full interface that the Insta360 link uses is not UVC. It is a it is a direct connection to the camera and has a lot more control. So you'd be giving up a lot of a lot of that control going through that adapter like that. Uh, let's see. I was in a different mode here for a second. Uh, Mitchell Hill. That's who is next. Mitch. I'm I'm pretty good, but the only other question is, it's sort of a comment. I don't know that much about it, but it seems to have more inputs um, or gazintas and gazaltas on it than the version one did. So maybe they're getting around that by having a separate um, input just for the control. Yeah. Yeah, Jason, do you have a follow-up? Or Alex, did you want to slip in there between? Nope. No, no okay, Jason. I'm (laughs) just wondering if only the Obspot does UVC. If the Obspot only does it UVC, well, is I mean, is, the, um, is UVC a standard it. that only that only Obspot nope. does? Every every webcam has UVC, and and the Insta360 will will respond to you. UVC is the generalized control system for USB cameras. Got it. Um, and so so, but what happens is is that when you're UVC, you only have those generalized controls um, that have been published um, from there. Whereas Insta360's app t- has a lot more controls than that basic um, a library of, of UVC commands. And so you will be able to, if it works, you would be able to pan tilt and so on and so forth with the, with the Insta360, but you wouldn't have probably the color curves and some of the other commands and so on and so forth that are there. I, you probably wouldn't have. That makes actually good sense. So their internal protocol gives you more, but if you generalize, yeah. you have less. Yeah, makes sense. Let's move to the next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, Paul wants to know, what would an SDK from Insta360 bring to those of us who use Insta360 links and what's on your feature wish list? Ronnie, start us off and then Alex will help us. Yeah, uh, we use uh, a few of these um, uh, Insta360 links uh, for micro-conference use and uh, we are using hotkeys as of now and that is really problematic. We can't uh, redefine presets for instance uh, using hotkeys and we uh, we have a maximum uh, number of cameras we can control within the software itself. 
I would really love to have a API or, or a SDK that uh, make us uh, uh, able to control it more like um, on, a, on a root level uh, and do all the uh, settings for image, uh, for uh, uh, sensitivity, etc. And um, uh, just access all the functionality that are available in the interface and that is not available in the hotkey section. So that's what we would like to, to see. Alex? Yeah, I mean, we would definitely prefer to see a, uh, with, the, with you know, all the tools that we saw there. I, I will say that if we were able to just simply have presets, pan, tilt, control, and basic uh, brightness control, with, which is a UVC protocol, we'd probably be, do most of the shows that we want to do using those protocols there. And the reason there was a discussion the other day about OSC versus an SDK, and while OSC is a better kind of short-term solution of, oh, we can plug into it, a full SDK means someone can build a real handler to tie into many other things. And we're not now building an OSC handler that gets in between to handle, you know, it's, it's a, it gives us a more robust solution. So, and, and I, again, we're putting a lot of pressure on, on Insta360. Uh, you'll see in the links in the announcements in Discord uh, that I gave, I put a link to GitHub and I still recommend that everyone go to GitHub and request the SDK. The more people we put on that list, the heavier the weight is of, hey, we need an SDK. Um, and so uh, we can do this as a group and kind of, nudge them towards the right direction let's go down uh the next question next one in from danny law in malaysia and here in our panel asking is there a way to prevent mac os ventura ventura to auto sense the display resolution as when it does so the display goes blank for now i have to toggle from 60 hertz to 50 hertz in the os display setting alex help us out uh, yeah you need it what you needed there is a is a uh um, you need a uh, EDID uh, simulator. So what basically what you do is you put an EDID um, uh, um, little it's a little plug, and you have you plug your computer into it, and then it into whatever you're trying to do there, and you it will read it, and then you can lock it, and then it'll always show up as like, hey, I'm this, and the computer should always it's always requesting the same thing at that point, and the computer should always know what it what it needs after that. Um, so, and I, I don't know who makes those because a lot of times they're built into other tools that we use, but I know that there's some smaller standalones that will do that. It's like digital Groucho glasses. I'm that guy. <laughs> just just get to read this thing. Exactly. Jason Beige. That's exactly what it is. It's a perfect analogy. So yeah, once you get it set the way that you want, you lock um, the EDID in and um, that is the part that does the handshake. I'm pretty sure you're still going to get a momentary blank and that's because of Mac OS and the way that it gets rendered. You might be able to go into displays and under advanced go to show resolutions as a list, but that's not going to be retained. It's it's just going to stay there. And um, the minute you pull it out and put it back in, you're probably going to get that same issue. But yeah, um, I would try Monoprice. They're, I don't know, 100 bucks or so for an EDIED cloner that you can program. Danny, this was your question. You have a follow-up? Yeah, sorry. I think I, I left a cru critical uh, information out of it because I'm using a Mac Studio. Uh, Mac Studio. So USB-C USB out to HDMI cable not adapter, cable, to the Blackmagic HDMI to SDI bidirectional converter into a 4ME Constellation HD. So through multiple testing, I discovered that that is the OS level because I have another USB-C to the Ultra Studio uh, 3G monitor to another display. That's rock solid. 
it doesn't even flicker. But the one that is, because that doesn't get picked up on the Mac OS, the Mac OS picks up the other two displays, uh, which is the LED wall and all that. And that's the one that occasionally goes blank. Hmm, interesting. Jason, do you have some follow-up? So let me be sure that I understand this. Um, the SDI works perfectly, but the HDMI does not. Is that correct? No, the, um, the USB-C to the Ultra Studio Monitor 3G, that's, oh, that's on Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt to Thunderbolt, right? And then uh, it converts to yeah, SDI out to the 4ME. But the Atom bidirectional... 12G converter that takes either or, that's the one which ever, that's the one that goes blank. So we could see on the multi view, it just go blank. And then we got you know, it. Yeah. Um, that still makes sense to me. I mean, if you want a Thunderbolt converter, OWCs, in my experience, tend to be the most rock solid. But because the handshake is happening, um, with the converter, the, the bidirectionals can be more squirrely, and Alex's EDID cloner will fix that. Alex, you want to weigh in? Yeah, I think that I, I I do think that if you if you still take one of these, there's lots of little ones that are basically an HDMI in, HDMI out. They look like a little key, and I still think that if you put that in between, you go USB C to HDMI to this HDMI cloner. And then into your H, your your bidirectional HDMI um, converter, you have that little cloner in between. And once you have it working, you tell it to lock it to that. I think you're going to find that it's going to do it correctly every single time. Now it is a pretty critical point of failure. <laughs> like I, I don't, you know, you're you're now taking your entire signal and then running through a small twenty dollar adapter. Um, you know, so if I was using this for actual production, I'd be. I'd probably buy something that I'd probably buy an Ultra Studio. If I was going to use it for production and I was having that issue, I probably wouldn't. Um, I probably wouldn't use this to do that, but you could um, in a pinch. I, I I used to have these little these little converters, and some of them are a little bit more robust. Um, so there's some emulators. They're EDID emulators, is what you're looking for, and um, you can get more robust ones. Um, and I've used them, but generally, if we're having trouble with them in their production, if there's something that's going to one of my displays, I don't worry about it. If it's a production system, putting something like that in the middle is not something that I'll do. You know, I'll, I'll find a production level solution for it. Courtney, you had some thoughts? Yeah, I just found the, the there's some from Hall called EDID uh, emulator without HDCP. You know, they don't support, they're like, like uh, Alex was describing, just a little dongle that goes, uh, routes the HDMI through it, and then it will... Uh, then hold that EDID information, and then you can unplug your monitor and just leave it plugged in, so it'll emulate it. Also, there's uh, one from Geffen makes a thing called the uh, EDID Detective, which has much more uh, capabilities that uh, it'll actually detect, and you can hook up to it and display what the EDID is, uh, read out information, and it can also, I think, emulate. Uh, but remember, these don't support HDCP. So if you're hooking them up to something that has copyright bits, that uh, it you may not get image out. And remember, uh, as always, you drive the show with your questions. So we have a full two hours today of Q and A. Uh, this being a holiday, so if you have questions you want to put into the queue, please do so. And never forget, you get to vote on them, which determines which questions we get to in what order and how much time we spend with them. So make sure that you are actively voting if you want to see your questions and uh, come up faster and we'll have us spend more time with them. Let's get to the next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, asking, 
How long do you imagine it'll be before Zoom offers an AI technical director? Ah, Courtney Gooden. Hey, it already happened. At least on webinar, uh, it uses automatically, you know, video follows audio. Uh, so it can switch for you to whoever's speaking at that moment automatically. And of course, there's AI built into their noise cancellation, which works quite well, which I'm using right now. And it unfortunately didn't block out that phone that was ringing just a second ago. But uh, they're using a lot of AI technology already uh, in Zoom. You may not realize it. Alex? Yeah, I think that I think we're going to see a lot more of that um, process. Um, as we move forward. So I think that the um, the hard part is really thinking about every show. So the AI director can do a basic show for folks. And as Courtney said, there's already an auto audio follows video, but there are, you know, as you see the, the stuff that Adam's been working on, you're going to see more complex versions of that most likely. Um, for instance, you know, we've talked about we want to do more office hours, but we also, you know, more hours of office hours on specific subjects. But can we build a team for each one of these? And when we can't, what can we do? And so a lot of it is trying to build a decision tree over, okay, we're going to go to the gallery, and now we're going to go to this, and now we're going to go to that, and now we're going to go to this. Will it be as good as a human? Probably not. Um, but would it be something that you could turn on and have a person kind of, you know, one or two people moving through it? Um, possibly. And so those are the kind of things that I think that you'll see is, is how do you build? And I think that what eventually what Zoom's going to want to do is do something where they build that, let us build that decision tree if this then that you know you know uh, you know that type of thing um where it makes a bunch of you could build a decision tree of how it's going to do the edit um and i think that that would be really really interesting um to see how it how it builds there so you're implicitly still controlling it and designing the kind of show that you want as opposed to just a generalized solution like audio follows video so um so i think that those are some of the things that could happen we may do end up doing those before zoom uh, to solve some of our own our own challenges there again i think for the main show that we have here um and for shows that if we did shows that we thought would be high high uh you know viewership we probably still have all humans doing that because it allows us to to really uh, build something much more complex but having something that someone can just put together a show and have it be more than just cutting back and forth i think would be very valuable and next question Simon Rea from Midlands United Kingdom asking, is there a solution to power a MixPre 3 from mains power while connected to a Mac? The supplied power unit takes up the MixPre's USB-C port, but I want to keep it running regardless of reboots and other things. Mitch Hill, start us off. Yeah, I believe that one of the uh, uh, backpacks for the uh, for the battery on the back of the unit, uh, there's one available uh, that has an Hiroshi, um, however you'd like to say that, uh, connector on it so you can adjust that to uh, plug into your power distribution or into uh, some kind of a wall outlet yeah i i confused that i said high rose for a lot of times and i still get confused about it hiroshi i think is correct but i have no real idea courtney your thoughts um uh, one other possibility is you might be able to use a port expander that takes power in uh ac power in and then distributes that uh DC power over USB-C to the Mac itself over its USB-C port and to anything else hooked up over the US, the additional USB-A or C connectors that are on that uh, hub or uh, uh, docking station, you know, usually. So you, you could pull, you just have to make sure it, it can deliver, each one of those USB ports can deliver up to three amps, which is about what that uh, uh, MixPre is going to require. 
Uh, but I, yeah, you're right. I'm not sure if it, if you hook it up that way, if it will talk over the USB uh, to serve as USB interface at the same time. I'm not sure whether the, hooking it up that way would work or if it would just power it and it wouldn't uh, provide your uh, audio out over the USB. Alex? Yeah, the, um, if you use a battery, put the battery pack on the back, it's only going to use the battery pack when it needs it it's not going to run it down you do have to remember to turn off your mix pre but you could through reboots and so on and so forth it's just going to drop over i believe to the battery although now now that i said that i'm not sure if it if it drops over gracefully or not so um we i can't remember if we've done that or not but i thought we've i thought we've done that in that in that period but we'll we'll do some research on that ask that again i have a mix pre three here i'll we'll try to figure this out yeah, we need to know, does it drop over as a ballerina or as a dancing elephant there? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Next question. Uh, Eric Hertz from Hartford, Connecticut. Is there a desktop application to join and listen to Dante Audio? Ronnie Hofsoy is going to help us, Ronnie. Well, you, of course, have the original software from Audinet, which is uh, uh, Dante Via and Dante uh, Virtual Sound Card, which uh, uh, costs a little bit. Uh, I would really uh, emphasize going with those solutions. And uh, there are some some rumors uh, that you are able to listen to Dante channels uh, with some hacks uh, going on, but I wouldn't uh, go that way, uh, at least in the professional environment. I would uh, always go with the, the license uh, systems. Alex? Uh, loop back and audio hijack. <laughs> we'll do that. Um, so you don't, you could just simply uh, grab, I think you could just do it with audio hijack, but to be, to have full control, you can have loop back in it and basically just routing, you're routing whatever uh, Dante signals you have into an output and then opening them up and you can send that from audio hijack to any speaker you want or however you want to listen to it. All right. On the Mac. A couple of- Otherwise it's probably some kind of fruity or vegetable that can be used <laughs> on the, uh, on the What's PC. What's the company that makes the potato <laughs> and the, the kumquat the and the, Pineapple. <laughs> I, I want an audio pineapple. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to cut into their business just by releasing audio pineapple. Audio you know, pineapple. People won't be able to tell the difference. They're like, oh, it's a fruit. I'm, I'm an audio pomegranate user. Let's move to the next question. And Robert Sababity from Poland is here asking, how many of you, how many panelists are looking at your camera through a teleprompter? Is there a better way to see the screen and still have your eyes focused on the camera lens? Mark Giuliani is going to start us off here, Mark. So I am using a Prompter People 24-inch teleprompter, and I have a browser open on one side, and I see the gallery on another side. And let's go to Jason Beish. What say you? Yeah, I, too, have a Prompter People. Um, I missed my 24. I, I don't have one that is nearly as big at the moment. But, yeah, um, I wouldn't do anything without it. Love it. Uh, next up is Mitch Hill. I'm using a uh, ICANN uh, interrogator, whatever the heck it is. Interrotron. Uh, uh, that's the word I'm trying to remember. It sounds like something very sci-fi. Um, and I'm just using it for eye contact. Uh, it's small, and it goes on the front of my lens just like a matte box. does the job. Ronnie Hofsoy. Well, there is a easy solution, but it's not better than a, a prompter. I'm experimenting with... Uh, TV, a uh, big TV uh, right behind the camera, which is uh, uh, showing whatever I wanted to show. Uh, so that's uh, the easy solution. Of course, uh, you, you will look in the camera, but your mind will also see what's behind it. And Courtney Gooden. I probably own more teleprompters than all of you combined. <laughs> and 
uh, I'm not using one. <laughs> so, this, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, is a, yeah, is a guy who owns an Emmy for <laughs> developing the digital version of the teleprompter. So believe Courtney. <laughs> anyway, I just use my uh, Canon camera exactly right at the very top of my main monitor here. And I try and establish eye contact whenever I remember to look at the lens. Other than that, if I'm trying to read something, you'll see me looking off to the side because I just don't have room to mount. Uh, my teleprompters are all 15-inch teleprompters and they're huge camera mounts with big beam splitters. And I'm tucked over in the corner of my living room, don't really have room to set it up. Yeah, and I'm using a little seven inch one. I just can't train my brain to go look at it enough. And that's purely a wetware problem, not a hardware problem. I think they really do help if you're going to be online and Zoom a lot and you're talking to clients and things like that. The idea that you can access information and still keep your eyes on what is essentially the audience, very powerful thing. So it, it's worth spending time learning how to do. Let's go to the next question. From John Nichols in Concord, California. Happy 4th to those in the U.S. Keynote question, is there a way to cut out a no-fill shape from another shape? I'm making overlay graphics and find it easier to start with the entire look and subtract where the video goes. Alex, help us out. Yeah, if you want to cut that out, what you want to do is inside of the, uh, I believe it's under a range, you'll see shapes and lines. And inside of shapes and lines, inside of there, you'll see a, a, a Boolean function. So you'll have add, subtract, intersect, um, a couple other ones. And so you can take an object, take an, they both, they all have to be shapes, which now can be SVG, which is super important for us because now you can import these SVGs. So you could make an SVG a shape somewhere else. You don't even have to use these tools. And bring them in. Now, note that if your SVG gets too complicated, uh, it gets confused. <laughs> you know, I mean, it'll bring it in and display it, but some of the stuff isn't perfect if you make a really complex SVG, which I've tried. Um, and um, so, but if you take that shape, either an SVG or a shape that you already have built in, like two ovals or a square and an oval, you can take one of them and put on the other and say subtract that, and um, it will subtract, it'll knock that hole through. Um, and it actually does a really good job of, of those Boolean functions, and um, uh, I do that all the time. So yeah, so you can kind of build much more complex pieces, you can do it with multiple shapes to slowly build what you want. Um, so it's, and then you can still click on it and make editable, and you'll see all the actual um, control points, and you can keep on editing it from there as well. Jason Beige. Everything Alex said, and I would play around with the intersect function. That's the only other Boolean one that I find to be really handy. Yeah, 100%. There you go. Uh, let's get to the next question. David Brady in New York, New York, asks, uh, looking for an alternative to using uh, Apple's Photos app for managing all my photos. Any good suggestions for such an app? Alex, start us off. Yeah, I would say that typically I would say Lightroom is probably the next best thing for most users. It's cross-platform. Uh, it has a lot of controls that are built into it. Of course, it's going to cost you, I think it costs you some money on, on iOS uh, to use it. Uh, but I would say that if you're in a mostly, if you're in a cross-platform, I think that Lightroom makes a lot of sense. If you're in a non-cross-platform, if you're really just using a Mac, I would ask you why. Because the Photos is so robust and has so many th features built into it. It doesn't do everything that Lightroom does, um, definitely. But there are so many things that are so seamlessly built into your iOS and macOS and everything else that it gets complicated if you start. It, you got to really think about that hard. <laughs> so Apple's got a pretty good lock on that process because they keep on adding features. And it's the metadata. It's the what's available to your Apple TV. It's available. All those things are all tied into the app. Courtney Gooden. 
Yeah, I was going to suggest Lightroom, uh, but Google Photos is a good cross-platform op- uh, option as well. That's what I use because it's in every Chrome browser. Uh, uh, you can have access to it and you can share with people outside the wall to garden. So even if you primarily are on a Mac, you know, a lot of times you want to share those photos with people who may be living outside your little bubble. So uh, Google photos or Lightroom, good choices. And next question. Danny Law in Malaysia and here in our panel is shooting and delivering in 4k necessary when most of the content is being consumed on mobile devices, asking since Insta360 Go 3 only captures up to 2K footage. Ronnie, start us off. Well, if this is for action camera use, so skiing, diving, or whatever, or or or, or other type of action camera, which these products are, are meant to uh, capture, I would say that um, 4K is not as important as high frame rate and uh, being limited to only um, uh, 30 frames per second. I think that is the, the big uh, limitation for me, uh, at least. Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, I think that... Um... You don't, you know, it's not necessary. It depends on what your, what your show is, what, what kind of, how evergreen is that show? Is it going to be something that people are going to want to watch long in, in the distant future? Or is it something that they are, um, you know, going to use right now? And so, um, but 4K definitely is what I would generate most of my content with. Um, but if you're, you might have to look at the immediacy of it. Um, there's definitely times when we shift down to 1080p because we want to just get it out there quickly and easily. Courtney? Yeah, it depends on it depends. It depends on what the subject matter of your uh, website is, or your or, or your video is that you're shooting. If you're, uh, you know, analyzing cameras or drone footage, definitely go for the 4K because uh, people will want to see what kind of detail uh, that that kind of footage uh, can deliver uh, and produce and deliver in 4k in that respect otherwise if you're just doing uh you know uh, a kibitzing uh review review of non-video stuff uh then i think uh, 1080p should work fine for you jason and all, everything that everyone said i would be remiss if i didn't at least mention as i always kind of do bitrate is what matters in this case um especially if you're going through any sort of compression um bitrate is going to trump the number of dots and the number of frames because it's you know it's actually the data stream yeah and i'll just also note most of my clients are used to the fact that since i shoot in 4k at least in terms of origination all the time they've gotten conditioned to ask me if i can punch in and reframe a lot of the content so i tend to shoot a little bit wider than i would otherwise knowing that since i'm shooting at 4k if i'm delivering at 1920 1080 i've got a good little bit of latitude towards reframing the shots once they're already in the system if i drop back and shoot at um HD at 1920-1080, then I, it, it falls apart really quickly if you push in on an image like that. So just things to think about. Um, let's go to the next question. From Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, is there a generative art AI service where you can upload a picture of multiple people and use that to create YouTube thumbnails that really stand out? It would be nice if they had a template where you could specify episode title text too. Alex? Title and text is hard. 
<laughs> so, so, you know, like, I, I don't think that that's a, uh, I, you know, title in Texas is hard. Um, there, you can get single letters if you say I want an M or I want something else like that. Um, but getting a, a whole text uh, generally isn't isn't working right now. Um, so I, I would probably be careful of that. The um, You could potentially put up three images where you load them into your conversation with Midjourney, then select them and say copy link, and then link, 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 link these three things, and then give it a prompt and then see what pops out the other end. And, you know, it may work. It may be amazing. It may be horrible, you know, but, but, you, can, but you can fire it off and let it roll a couple times to see what happens. John Preto. There's nothing off the shelf that will do exactly what you want here, Alex. It, it, this sounds like a combination of Midjourney and Photoshop combined, the template inside of Photoshop and then feed stuff from mid-journey over to Photoshop. That's how I would do it. All right, let's go to the next question. And next one in from Eric Hers in Hartford, Connecticut. Has anyone used GStreamer to play Dante Audio? And there's a long uh, command uh, uh, sequence there that you'll just have to trust us on. Alex, let's, can you un untangle all that gobbledygook? <laughs> Yeah, no, I think we have to look at it. I, I haven't, I haven't actually, I don't have any experience with GStreamer. And so now that it has been brought up, um, I think that uh, by Eric, we'll have to t do a little research on it. Go ahead. Uh, Jason Beige. Uh, yeah, I've played with GStreamer. Um, unless there's some sort of way to tie into AES 67, I, I can't imagine that the two are going to overlap, but I suppose it's not impossible. Uh, maybe that, maybe, maybe that long chain of code works. I don't know. Eric, you've gotten a little ahead of us, I think, and not much familiarity on the panel yet with it. But now that you brought it on the uh, radar for everyone, uh, come back again and let's see if we get farther along that pathway. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, what advantages would DigitalOcean have over AWS for a small-scale library website with databases? Alex, help us out. I don't think any. I'm sorry. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know why. I mean, I, 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 we can decide that for some reason you don't want to use AWS, but um, maybe you, you find something that has some price advantages, but I, I even think that's hard. Uh, I think that there's, it's very hard to get out of the big three, you know, the, whether it's Microsoft or Amazon or Google, when it comes to doing cloud services, I don't see a lot of advantages to using other options um, just from a pure scalability and even cost perspective. Let's go to the next question. From David Brady in New York, New York. David asks, in OS X Ventura, I have a number of options in my open with option menu, some of which are no longer installed. Where in the file system can I pitch these stale applications? Jason Bache is going to start us off, Jason. <sighs> there might be a P list somewhere. Do yourself a favor. Pull your stuff off. Reload Mac OS. It's time. Yeah, the, the cruft. I, the word cruft comes to mind. As you don't refresh your system and kind of take it down to zero, you end up with a lot of things hanging on. Alex, your thoughts? I, I have to admit, this is one of the reasons I'm so sensitive to um, apps being in the app store is because unless they're big apps that I have to use, I really have to be very, every time, for me, the work that it takes for every app that isn't in the app store for me to actually like go in, do the serial number, do the other product. I've gotten better at it. I've got a little database and I've got a little product. But when I buy an app, if you're an app developer, when I buy your app and you're not in the app store, then I have to copy this and move this over and have a list. But every, and I don't do it every system, but every other system, I just wipe the computer to the ground and I just install everything. And generally I install everything from the app store back into my computer. And then I install the things I use most. And then I only install software after that when I need it. 
I just slowly add them back on. So I don't try to reinstall everything I had. I, I only go through the trouble of reinstalling it. And that's usually, it's pretty deadly for a lot of apps because I just drop, they just drop off and I find other ones instead of theirs because I no longer. So I, I, if you have an app that's less than $100, I would think really hard about not being in the app store because people like me will kind of slowly not have you on the computer. Ronnie Hofsoy. There are uh, applications, uh, utilities that can uh, fix this for you. So just do a Google search and you will find several. Ah, good. There, there you go. So hopefully, David, you have some various options. Um, this is the point where I say, remember, you can always add questions right up to the, uh, well, today, probably up to the end of the show, because we're doing two hours of question and answer. So uh, get your questions in and vote on them. Uh, we're going to be going for a good little bit of time, and we love to answer your questions. We have an amazingly talented group of panelists here today that can answer, as we're seeing, virtually any questions you might have. So take advantage of that. Let's go to the next one. Uh, producer Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida asks, can you recommend a small automatic mixer with multiple four to six analog inputs? Thanks. Courtney Gooden, start us out. My usual go-to is, is my F6 here, which is the Zoom F6. Uh, it has six inputs, a pretty high quality preamps. It's a recorder. It is also a USB interface. It also has auto mixing built in. It also supports ambisonic uh, for channel input for ambisonic recording. Uh, it has time code built in. So if you want to use it as a uh, 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 input for recording uh, high quality audio along with your video, uh, you can sync it up with time code. And it's uh, all under uh, 750 bucks. So um, that would be a good choice. It's 32 bit float as well. A lot of performance for a little device. Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, the Zoom will do it. Um, the Mix Pre 10 or Mix Pre 6 will both both have the uh, both have that in there, as well as the Mix Pre 3. But you're looking for more channels there, so so you'd look at one of those, and they'd be a little bit more expensive. Um, and uh, but those are another thing to look at for a small mixer that does what you want it to look like. Now, once you start getting to those price points, there's a you know even like an X, I believe an XR18 has an auto mix built into it as well. That's from um, Behringer, and that's going to be a bigger unit. Uh, it's going to have a lot more I.O. It's not a field recorder anymore. So the XR18, I don't know if the XR12 has it or not, but those are other options that, that might be worth looking at. That should take us to the next question. And uh, I have this Funny question. Uh, what are the uh, top fireworks companies that specialize in fourth celebrations? Uh, wow, Mitchell, do you, do you know some off the top of your head? Um, I, one was uh, indicated earlier, and I'll, I'll leave that to Alex's answer because it comes from his hometown. But it seems like a, a small bunch of family-owned uh, companies do this, um, and most of them seem to come from Italy. I'm not sure what that's all about, but uh, there are uh, very specialized companies, and I think there's like five or so uh, numbers of companies that do it. But, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I just did a quick search of top 10 fireworks manufacturers in the world and got got a good list of places. I think these are family organizations because I see a lot of brothers on the list. But Alex, thoughts? 
Yeah, so um, Zambelli. Zambelli is the one that's in the, that's, I think, in Vandergrift. Um, it's a little outside of Pittsburgh. And what's really great is a lot of pirate games have fireworks displays. The pirates aren't, aren't, don't win very often, but the fireworks displays, the fireworks nights are pretty often <laughs> and um, they're really, really good. And, um, uh, and so the, uh, uh, the fireworks displays are amazing because Zambelli comes in and does them there, and I, I imagine they don't charge as much or whatever. I think they test a lot of things there as well. Um, the um, the it's interesting when you go to I have actually I've actually been to Zambelli's where they're making the fireworks, and there's all these little huts that are really far apart from each other. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you know what I mean? So if one blows up, they don't all blow up. And so there, there's a lot of safety pr- protocols um, that are that are there. These little, these little, I don't know if they're huts, but they're like these little buildings that are very built very specifically to manage explosions uh, so that it minimizes the impact. Um, but they, and they haven't, they've had, a, they have a really good safety record. Fireworks are dangerous. Um, the insurance is astronomical. Um, and it makes it very hard to get into in the United States. So you may do top world fireworks companies, and you'll see lots of them. In the United States, I think it is really three or four, maybe five, that do almost all the major fireworks. So they, it doesn't mean that there's not other fireworks companies, but Zambelli does most of the East Coast, um, and, 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 and Zambelli is probably the largest one in the United States um, as far as the, you know, what they work on, but there's like two or three other ones that do the other, the other pieces. But a lot of it has to do with, it's complicated. If you get it wrong, you know, there's, you know, it's lethal. Um, the, uh, you're doing it over things that are really expensive in cities, around cities. The insurance is just in, you know, and, and getting into it. No one, no one wants to insure a new fireworks company. So, so I think that unless, you know, I think that generally a lot of these fireworks companies have been doing this for a hundred years or more. Um, and, uh, and so anyway, so those are, those are the real challenges entrance to this business and, you know, is, is pretty low. And I don't think that it's, I don't think they're highly profitable either. So with all the insurance and everything else, I don't think that they make a ton of money. So it's just not, there's not a lot of reasons for other people to get, you know, into that, into that business. So, um, but it's, it sure is fun. I've worked on a couple, I, when I was in my twenties, I worked on fireworks teams and, uh, it was a, it was a really fun afternoon of putting together the, the, you'd fill the, you'd fill the mortars and the big thing was never plug it never plug it in it was, they're all electronic so you never plug it in until it's in the it's in the mortar like you know, don't plug it in and then put it in the mortar you don't want it to be there and never put your head over the mortar uh while you're lowering it <laughs> so you, know, you always lean back I like think this. that would be obvious and, and it was always it was it was don't put your you'd be surprised at how many people no one lost their head but you'd be surprised at how many people you'd have to yell at like hey buddy like you're, don't, don't look over the mortar when you're dropping it. You have a 14 inch mortar. Do not, do not drop that, you know, don't put your head over it. Um, and then always look away. So you'd, you'd go like this and you look away and that's if it went off, you didn't want to get anything in your eyes. So anyway, so the, um, and a lot of times we had, you know, glasses on all this stuff. So anyway, so the point is, is that, uh, you had to be very careful of putting those together, but it was so much fun to, to rig those, uh, to rig those systems up. Jason Beige. Yeah, for those who have never seen the inside of a, a of a fireworks shell, there are, you know, you'll, you'll get one, two, and three, and there are tiny little balls, like the smallest little balls are, are the, the kind of these groups of particulates. And the way that they are interwoven will determine the way that, um, the, the way that the cluster will explode. Would Alex just explain, like, don't stick your head over the border? That's like a guy looking at a cannon, like, you know, looking at the business end of a cannon. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, probably you're not going to live that long. Mitch, I think I skipped over you. No, that's no problem. Uh, 
It's interesting, the safety issues, because uh, the DuPont Company is based here in Wilmington, Delaware, and their famous Hagley facility um, is now a museum. And it's funny to go on the tour because they'll say, well, there's assembly building number two. Oh, I'm sorry, you can't see much of it, but the foundation is there. That's what's left after the explosion of 1825. And then here, oh, that one's gone too. Uh, that was from 1775. You know, all the uh, various uh, separations and safety precautions. And the way they built those uh, little uh, buildings, they had the roofs, you know, certain uh, pitch so that they could funnel the explosion somewhere. And it wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when. Courtney, your thoughts. Oops, sorry, I I thought you were going to somebody else first. The, uh, uh, you know, the king of all this who does fireworks every single day is Walt Disney Company because a friend of mine used to be one of the pyro guys that uh, worked at Disneyland. And they have this whole uh, complex air launch system that they launch... uh, Instead of a black powder charge that launches the firework up into the air, they have pneumatic-based launchers that launch, and they have built-in little 555 timers into each shell and a little igniter that sets it off uh, after it leaves the mortar. Uh, at a precise time. Uh, so it that cuts down on noise and you don't, it cuts down on smoke and pollution from the black powder launching so that they don't uh, dirty up the park with uh, low-level smoke coming from the launch area. And since they do this uh, every day, it's, it's proven to be pretty reliable. It's less noisy for the people on the ground. And uh, it's a good way to launch uh, fireworks. They have a pretty clean record of... Uh, of success, and of course, they have parks all over the world, which they've uh, impre- you know uh, taken this system and installed it all over the world, except for when John Phantasmic went oh, down. So that was excuse a problem. Yeah. <laughs> except for the dragon. Not good. So, uh, some of you guys might know the name um, uh, Bob Lazar. Bob Lazar is supposedly the UFO guy that worked at the at Area Fifty One out here. He used to build his own fireworks every year. He also had a rocket. Um, in his car he was an interesting guy and every fourth of july he would make his own mortars and we would go out in the desert and fire him off he's an interesting guy ah so the high level di wire alex uh the uh, the other thing that i think is really impressive is the uh when we're now seeing in, in lieu of these in australia and china and a couple other places these incredible drone shows um, that I think are going to, I think we're going to have, we're going to continue to have fireworks and people aren't going to be afraid that we're not, we're going to give up fireworks. But I will say the drone shows are just unbelievable. Um, just watching them. And some of them are very, very, look very much like that. Um, my favorite footage, some of my favorite footage from 4th of July though, is people flying their drones through fireworks. If you ever get a chance to look at those on YouTube, um, you know, just, just, just watch them there. I don't think that's legal to do that. Uh, I'm not, I'm, or I'm not certain it's legal to do that. But um, but it is sure fun to watch because um, the fireworks are just going all around the drone. I, I find that to be great, great footage. And I would be remiss if since I'm here in San Diego, if I didn't recount quickly the story of the Big Bay boom going bust in 2012. Uh, San Diego being a military town and having the gigantic naval bases the around us. Does, spectacular. Oh, yeah. Incredible. The the idea of do not wire things wrong, please, took place in 2012 when they were set up for the three barges full of fireworks, the synchronization to the radio music and all the rest of that. And somebody pushed the button to start it all off and everything 
went up in 30 seconds. Three barges full of 90-minute shows <laughs> just and, launched. And, and, and the, there's so many people, there's so many of us that are really glad. I mean, the thing is, is that I, I believe that, that a, a fireworks show should last about four minutes, you know, maybe 10 at the most. <laughs> and anything longer than that is for the fireworks company and for the fireworks makers, not for the audience. The audience is like, great, like, let's have some fireworks for 10 minutes. It's going to be amazing. It should be fast and furious and cool and then and then we're, then we're done um the uh but but one of the things has it has anyone done a documentary bill about the about the infamous explosion is, is it long enough has it's not too soon anymore i think i think that we could i think like it's time to and, bring it back i will say we went down to uh the embarcadero and watched about four years ago five years ago and it was really magnificent the uss independence which was docked down there was kind of our foreground and we had three large shows going off they really do it right and over the water that's if you're in a fireworks place where you've got an uh, uh beaches or some kind of water fireworks are just gorgeous reflected off the water so it just makes a beautiful thing but yeah 2012 was go look at big bay boom bust and you'll see it you'll see people's early cell phone footage <laughs> it was very white and very bright because <laughs> all the colors just melded into one big mess anyway cool cool thing oh mitch you had another last comment i just want to say i'd like to hear the announcement they made after that went <laughs> yeah. went up all at once like well that's it folks go home I heard there was a gig- I was I didn't live here back then, but I heard there was a gigantic. Oh my gosh! And then when people realized that was it, there was nothing else. It was like, oh, we we brought the kids out here and waited for seven and a half hours in the best possible spot. <laughs> well, and wait after for five the finale, minutes, like, folks. We're just getting warmed up. Never mind. Pack so. up, and <laughs> we'll see you next year. Crazy. Let's go to the next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul wants to know, where will you watch the 4th of July fireworks tonight? Live, network TV, online, or somewhere? Courtney, start us off. From my bedroom window, which uh, uh, luckily on the second floor, it overlooks the uh, out over the Wilshire Country Club is uh, close by. And they do a big fireworks display every year. And so uh, I get to uh, benefit from the sight and sound of those fireworks. And then on the TV in the bedroom with the air conditioner running where it's nice and cool inside, uh, I'll be watching Capital Fourth, which is the PBS show that they put on every year, which has uh, concerts, you know, patriotic music uh, from uh, Washington, D.C., uh, around the Capitol, and uh, and a big uh, fireworks display at the end of that. That or the Macy's New York uh, display has gotten pretty good, but depends on the weather conditions. If it's cloudy, eh, not so good. Uh, and and a lot of times Macy's has gotten so big with all the barges uh, out on the river that uh, the smoke, uh, as, as mentioned earlier, the launch system still use black powder. And the smoke from all the fireworks builds up so much you can't even see the fireworks from all the stuff coming off four barges at the same time. After a while, the smoke gets so thick, it's really hard to see someone. Jason Bache. In Albuquerque, New Mexico, my favorite place to look for or look at fireworks is to see all of them all at the same time. The way to do that is to go up the Sandia Mountain and you can see for what feels like infinity. And for for about 180 degrees, you can see um, Santa Fe and Albuquerque and just a little bit of Rio Rancho, depending upon which side of the mountain you're on. And it is incredible to ride the tram down just as the fireworks are starting because it, you feel like you're in the drone. It's, it's quite cool. Uh, Alex. 
Yeah, similar to that, if you're living, if you live in Denver, there is a place called Lookout Mountain, and you can go up to Lookout Mountain, and it's and it oversees a big chunk of Denver, and you'll be looking at usually ten to twelve different shows um, at going all going on at the same time, and it's it's not quite as close maybe as what Jason was talking about, but it, there's something magical about it um, that, and I will say that the, the a couple of years ago I flew into San Francisco right as this fireworks started, you know, on a, you know, we were flying in. And so you're flying past these fireworks shows that were far enough away, obviously that were safe and you didn't worry about it, but it was a very odd thing to look at this year. Uh, I'm on the beach, so I'm going to go up there. There, there's a rumor that they're going to fire them off the pier. <laughs> so I'm going to wander up. It's about a half mile away. I'm going to wander up the beach and see how it goes. If, if it, if it turns out well, I'll take some pictures. Mitchell Hill. Yeah. When you see a fireworks fail, I mean, that probably says something about me, but I'm sorry. Uh, in Chadsford, Pennsylvania, they uh, had a display that I, I'm, I'm wishing for again, just because it was fun to watch, where the uh, uh, the mortars weren't uh, properly uh, filled so that all of the fireworks went on to U.S. Route 1. So the drivers driving uh, south or north on uh, Route 1 probably had the best fireworks display they ever saw because things were exploding right around the cars. Luckily, nobody was hurt. Oh, ouch. Uh, Courtney. Yeah, and if you're in Los Angeles, just look out uh, your window because there's so many illegal fireworks that are going off. I mean, big displays these days. I don't know where they're getting them. They seized a bunch of them. I saw on the news the other night uh, with, you know, big mortar shells that I, you know, they're coming into the country from somewhere. And there was a great faux pas about a year ago or two years ago where they... um, they found a, a house with a cache of illegal fireworks. And so they called the bomb squad and they brought their special truck over there and their uh, safety detonation truck. And they put all the fireworks in it. And then they uh, exploded them in the, uh, in the safety desk, <laughs> safety truck and the truck blew up and uh, damaged a bunch of houses and the lawsuits are still flying. It can be dangerous. And by the way, I misidentified, and I got to correct this for the record, it's not the USS Independence, it's the Midway that's down at the end of San Diego, one of the aircraft carriers from World War II. Brilliant place to hang out, great tours. And so, next question. Next question from Pedro Gonzalez in Oklahoma. What is the difference between the A-10 Mini Pro and the A-10 Mini Pro ISO? What is ISO anyway, and why would I want to use it? Jason Bay, start us off. So ISO stands for isolation, and um, it, its real purpose is twofold. First, it will record every input that you give it, including, um, I believe, your super source and your clean feed. I'm not sure about that. Uh, but the, the, the real purpose is if you want to switch a show and then be able to, with a unified time code, be able to go back in time and switch your edit points, you need every track of every video in order to do that, like, um, you know, going backwards in time when you're making a recipe. Same idea. Ronnie Hofsoy. Yeah, and it, if you're using uh, DaVinci Resolve, uh, you can also do the edits uh, right away because uh, it also saves the, the project file. So it's easy editable uh, to repair in and out of different uh, angles. And um, uh, each, uh, uh, each separate input is recorded in a slightly higher quality uh, than just uh, uh, the normal uh, normal one, so you can have a higher quality. Uh, but please remember that um, all the um, uh, separate videos will uh, just have the main audio, uh, left, right. Uh, all the separate audios will still be in their audio folder. So please make sure that you are, are watching for that as well. 
Excellent information. We're getting close to the top of the hour here. And as I said uh, earlier in the day, we are going to be doing a full two hours of questions here. So standard stuff. Just a couple of announcements as we're heading toward the top of the hour here. Don't forget, every week we have all sorts of things coming up on the show. Um, and some things kind of come back regularly. I wanted to mention just uh, conversations with Tony Mobley. We do a behind the scenes look at that. So if those of you are interested on how kind of office hours works, this is a good way to see some of the kind of programming we do. That happens Wednesdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. There's also the Isadora Lab. For those of you who might be interested in show control and things like that, Isadora is a fine program, and L. Wilson Spiro comes here on Thursdays at 10 a.m. and talks about uh, how the Isadora works and how you can maybe adapt it for your own individual needs. All right, let's dive into the next question. Diving away with Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, what 15 to 20 inch teleprompter do people recommend? I find my 10 inch screen is too small to see names, etc. in Zoom, and I have to pull the Zoom window off the teleprompter, defeating the purpose. 24 inches would be too big and deep for my space. Let's start with Mark Giuliani. Okay, so I agree. The 10 inch, which I have at my other office, is way too small to read anything on. It's just to look at people's eyes. Uh, this is the one I'm using here, and yes, it takes up a lot of real estate. There is another one that is made by the same company. Let me see if I can show you that. And it sits on a mic arm, and it is available in 24-inch, 21.5-inch, and 15.6-inch. Be careful when you get the monitors because we had to send some of the smaller ones back. They just wouldn't work with the Mac M1. They were The frequency was just off, and when we sent them and got the larger ones, everything worked fine. Jason Beish. Yeah, um, the ones that uh, I'm pretty sure you just saw were prompter people. I kind of adore them. I, I have the one for um, for the desk that's on that huge desk arm and in turn have actually taken the same components, put them on rails and, um, and then put a 6K on a tripod with them too. Um, you might want to try a trapezoidal design um, that might be able to give you a little bit more real estate with a little bit less space. Uh, Courtney, am I completely off on that? Isn't that the point of a trapezoidal design is to make it look bigger than, than it actually is? Well, the, the main purpose of a trapezoidal design is to get the teleprompter out of the shot of the camera. Because the glass is at a 45 degree angle, uh, the top of the glass is further away or more in the shot than the bottom of the glass, which is usually behind the lens. If the lens is in the middle, the bottom of the glass at a 45 degree angle is behind the lens, so it's never a problem getting in the shot. But to get the edges out and the top out, if it's cut to a trapezoidal shape, uh, that will help uh, the glass at a 45 degree angle get out. And of course, you'll the bigger the glass, uh, the more the bigger the monitor. If you already have uh, uh, have a beam splitter or a piece of glass uh, for a, a larger monitor, and you're just looking for a monitor to replace, uh, we use the uh, EOEO monitors. Uh, they make them in a 15 inch of four by three. Uh, 1024 by 768, so that'll make those icons and names pretty big. Uh, if you go with the higher resolution, uh, then uh, things will be pretty small if you're trying to read text and things off of normal computer interface in that screen, If you're, unless you're right on top of it. Uh, 
and the EOYOs have in monitor image reverse. So if you don't have software that can do it, it will automatically reverse the image. It has also all those EOYOs have uh, you know VGA, HDMI, composite video, and BNC composite video input. So they're very handy to use for those that kind of stuff. They're not that bright. They're about uh, 300 to 400 nits. So I wouldn't use them outdoors, but for this, for eyeline view in your uh, in your Zoom studio, it would work fine. Mitchell Hill. Yeah, I, I had a similar uh, dilemma when I was shopping for one, and I think Mark uh, came up with the same ones that I liked a lot, the, the one with the arm. Uh, and th- the big dilemma that I had was whether or not go to 4 to 3 or 16 to 9. Very few are made for 16 to 9, and since I was using it as an Enteratron, I didn't want a truncated image because it would end up being letterboxed to go on a 4-3 monitor, even if it could accept that signal. So I, yeah. I would be interested in what Courtney has to say about uh, consolidating uh, those two particular uh, ratios. Courtney, you want to weigh back in? Well, if you have it on the output of a computer, it will, uh, and you plug us a 4 by 3 monitor in, it will, you know, uh, give you a 4 by 3 image. It will scale the stuff and won't necessarily letterbox something unless you're looking at, uh, unless you're looking at, uh, you know, high def 16 by 9 material that's meant to be in that shape. Uh, Zoom can adjust your gallery view and your, uh, uh, speaker view to be any, be any aspect ratio you want. So it will try, although we're transmitting in 16 by nine. So there will be black bars if you go full screen, but you can arrange it uh, so that you have a bunch of little windows within that uh, four by three aspect ratio. And the whole idea of teleprompter is to keep your eye line in the middle. And of course, the wider you get with 16 by nine, the further your eye line is going to wander from that lens that's in the middle behind that glass. So uh, narrower is better. Uh, for keeping your eye line uh, in line, if that's what you're using the prompter for. Yeah, for me, it was interesting when I was setting up my desk rig here. This this teleprompter is only maybe two and a half feet in front of my face right now. Uh, because of that, I tried to find smaller and smaller, and I ended up with a 12-inch diagonal. It's about 10 inches actually side to side in the, the horizontal plane. And I found that was a good size. If I got bigger than that, it just took up too much of my kind of uh, visual space because I also have a bigger monitor over it. So sometimes it's just the geometry of how far away it's going to be. I had never been in a situation where I wasn't using prompters at talent distance, and so bigger was always better for me. And boy, when we moved to work from home and Zoom and all the rest of the things that happened during the pandemic, looking for a smaller teleprompter became something higher on my list. But your mileage may vary. Let's go to the next question. From Berghard Friedrich in Easterberg, Germany, is there a maximum amount of fixtures when daisy-chaining DMX light fixtures? Any devices or possibilities to extend that? Uh, Ronnie Hofsoy, start us off. Yes, I know. Um, some fixtures actually repair the DMX signal before it uh, uh, send it uh, further uh, down the line. But of course, there are limitations to the number of channels of each uh, uh, line, so to speak, is, which is uh, 255, uh, uh, excuse me, 512. Um, but there are, uh, there are ways to, to increase the signal with repeaters that can fix that if you need to have one daisy chain going a long uh, way. Um, there are also splitters, uh, which is uh, frequently used in stage settings uh, to have uh, increased uh, capabilities uh, without uh, uh, hitting the, the length uh, or the maximum length. 
And uh, please also remember to use uh, end termination on the last uh, fixture uh, to prevent um, reflection of the signal going back on the cable. Uh, and this is uh, even more important when you're starting to use more advanced features of the DMX protocol, which is uh, RDM, uh, that needs uh, that needs uh, good communication. And um, use good cables or even wireless uh, solutions. There you go, Alex. Continue. And and make sure that uh, you're using DMX cables uh, as opposed to audio cables, especially as you start to extend that in short uh, amounts, 10 feet or less. The difference in the ohms, I believe it's like 70 versus 110 or 70 versus 120 or something in that range uh, won't matter that much. But as you go longer, it's going to become a problem for your DMX. So think about that as, as you start to daisy chain those out. They, the, the audio, the three the three prong version, <laughs> the XLRs of the uh, DMX look exactly like the audio cables, but they are not the same. So, uh, so make sure to mark those cables as well um, to make sure that you're, you know which ones are which if they get piled together. We've had many times when we've gotten them all thrown into a case together and unwrapping that if they're not marked is a thing. Uh, and then remember that a lot of folks now when they're doing long runs are using ArcNet. Um, so they have either DMX Kings or NTEX or whatever that are on the end. That doesn't give you more channels necessarily, another universe, uh, but it does mean that you can get the, go out to certain locations with Ethernet and then from there have much shorter daisy chains. Ronnie, you had another follow-up? Yeah, and uh, the other way around is perfectly good. You can use a DMX cable for audio, uh, even though uh, sound guys need to uh, make a point about that uh, we've done that several times so but not the other way around as alex said ah cool all right hopefully that helped let's go to the next question eric her is from hartford connecticut asking what is the bit rate of dante av ultra has anyone used it alex can you help us out you know, I, I haven't, I don't know a lot of people using Dante AV. I believe that the bandwidth is between 100 and 700 megabits a second, um, and it's tunable. So it's, it's really designed to work with your network. Uh, but I haven't, um, I don't know a lot. I haven't used it uh, heavily. I'm, I'm, I'm still much, mostly a copper person. <laughs> so, but, uh, uh, but I haven't used it heavily uh, or, or much. Um, I've played with it. I turned it on and got it working, um, but that's about as far as I've gone. And uh, I don't know, it's, I think it's a hard road. I think they're looking for a very specific group of people that use Dante a lot and nothing else. So this is really for, in my opinion, for people who do primarily audio, they want to add video to what they're doing. Um, this has been something that they're trying to get into. But as people, for people who are already doing a lot of video, I think it's a hard cliff for them to climb because a lot of us already have pipelines that we're using. Let's go to the next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida has a question. Which AI companies are the leaders in AI development? John Predis, give, Prado, give us your expertise. This is a history lesson. So, so DeepMind, which was founded in, 10, in 2010 and then acquired by Google in 2014, had probably the best AI experts in the, in the world. And so they, they've taken DeepMind now and they've merged that with Google Brain. So both those divisions now are combined into one. And so Google has the best people on the planet right now working for them. All right. Sounds like a pretty definitive answer. Let's go to the next question. Next question coming in from Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. Have panelists used an AI-generated voice yet? What services are you using? Any local hosted or open source option worth testing? Uh, let's start with John Preto. So the one we use is called Eleven Labs, and it does a really good job. It's not open source. If you're looking for open source solutions, go to futuretools.io. They've got a list of like 2,000 products up there. 
Uh, Mark Giuliani next. So we have a product that we use that does our contact management, our radio traffic, and helps with the creativity. And in it, they've just installed a couple months ago an AI routine that will let you put in three or four words, and then it will give you a 30-second spot. Now, it's not what we use, but it's interesting to play with. They also have about 30 voices that you can use, and we're starting to play with those too. Mitchell Hill. Yeah, and now for the completely different opinion from a voiceover guy that uh, relies on that income. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in what AI voices are doing. I think that they sound very, very good. But the problem is, is that if you put them into a, a commercial or a reading copy over a period of time, they just don't have the pantameter that you expect from a live person, the way of putting pauses in between words and things like that. Not yet. But um, I think the voices are very, uh, uh, very authentic sounding. It's just their ability to put a whole sentence together. Just don't do it for me. Courtney Gooden. And if you stumble across a video with evangelistic preacher talking about Bitcoin, it's not me. It may sound like me, but John Pretto <laughs> did, it, did it using 11 lab sampling of my voice. Uh-oh. Alex? Yeah, I, I think that one of the things that, that's interesting is that while we think about ad copy and other things like that, there's also the, the mechanical need for just lots and lots of things that are in text, whether those are books. And again, there are a lot of people who creatively read books and people listen for that. I will, you know, for the kind of things that I listen to audio for, for the most part, whether it's magazines or books, I really don't care who's reading it. Like, you know, like I'm just, I just need a, an audio version that doesn't sound completely like a computer. And, and so as a result, um, I think that there's a huge market for this of being able to have all the magazines. I, for instance, listen to a thing called News Over Audio, uh, NOAA, um, and uh, I listen to it all the time. <laughs> and uh, um, the, uh, uh, so anyway, so I think that that's a, that's a really, when that moves to, to, to pe away from people and towards equipment, I don't think it's going to matter <laughs> to me, you know. So, so I think that that's the, there's a lot of uses for it other than just ads or or things that are creative. Mark Giuliani. So to, uh, to Bill and Mitchell's, uh, I guess, idea of the AI, uh, we have branded our station with voices that have been there for 20 years. So we're not going to replace those voices with AI. It would ruin our brand. But if anybody wants to go into After Hours, I'll play you some of the things that we've worked on, and you can see how they sound. So maybe after the show or sometime we can arrange to do that. Yeah, I, so as a somebody who does voiceover work and has done a whole bunch of different kinds over the course of a year, uh, here's my two cents about it. Uh, there are tons of utility place, player voices that can be replaced perfectly well, and I think we're, we're hearing some good examples of those. If you need somebody to read you the recipe, who cares whether there's a lot of interpretation? Uh, I still don't know much of anybody who speed listens to poetry because that's not the point of it. The point of it is the interpretation. And so I think you're going to see this bifurcation of some use cases will want the authenticity of someone or you, you know, I've, I've been directed for 50 years, basically, in uh, somebody on the other side of the glass working on the little nuances of how they want me to deliver copy. Now, I believe that could be programmed into 
the, a system to create that. I don't know whether that's going to be the scripts marked up with diacriticals to say, I want you know you to rise here or fall there or emphasize this word 20%. I believe that could be possible. But I do also think it's going to be less efficient than getting a brain behind it who has been directed for a long time. And you can instantly say, I really like that, but finesse line three a little bit and give me something I wasn't planning on. And I've been told that a lot when I've been on microphone behind the booth. You know, the booth. Give me three different reads of this and let me figure out which one I want you to do and then put that into context with the other things. So some of it will be replaceable and it's just something we all have to deal with. And it's going to be a painful transition as we are seeing with the writer's strike right now. They know that AI is coming in and it's going to be displacing a lot of the middle down to the bottom of the market. Just flat out, it's going to decimate it. It's going to happen. You have to deal with it. Uh, so if you want to be in the talent area of this, you have to develop new different kinds of skills because it's going to be displacing a lot of people. It's just something I think we all have to get ready for. Hopefully there will be enough left for the people who are really talented and understand this nuance idea that I'm talking about. But only time will tell. Alex, you had some more thoughts? Bottom 80%. That's generally what AI is going to take <laughs> from a lot of these positions is the bottom 80%. And so you just really have to figure out how you stay in the top 20%. Um, you know, in the top 20%, there's going to be still a strong demand for that and probably money. Uh, you know, money to be there because they, they know that that's harder to get to. Um, so, so if you're in that area, it's great. If you're not in that area, if you're, you know, kind of, you know, there's not going to be any jobs in the U.S. that are kind of something you can phone in. For much longer, you know, like that, you're just kind of filling the space. If you're not, if you're just filling the space, and you're another person that does the thing, and and you're kind of just churning through stuff, you need to be thinking about where you're going to go because it's not going to, you know, a computer or someone overseas is going to replace that. Um, and so you just really have to figure out how you're, how you can be, whatever it is, it can, it can be answering the phone, it can be managing a lot of different things, working with other people, building whatever you're going to build. You have to be excellent at it. And I think if you're excellent at it, there's going to be a market. And in, fa in fact, that market may be more lucrative for you than it was before. But if you're just kind of filling a gap, um, a lot of other things are going to fill that gap for you. And again, I think that where you're going to see most of this happen for quite some time is in areas that aren't seen by a lot of people or aren't as high a priority. I've had ChatGPT write scripts for me, like little two-minute little two-minute scripts. Are they as good as a feature film that I've seen, uh, that I've seen almost any feature film? No. Are they as good as a lot of Saturday morning cartoons? Eh, it's pretty close. <laughs> so, so, so I think that that's, so I think it just depends on, on where, where the budget is and, and what's going on there. Mitchell Hill, you want to add another? The current time is 11, 18, no, sorry. Uh, I agree. I think there's a definite uh, division between what is a utility voice that just needs to be understand, like, uh, the A-Lady and uh, uh, Google, all of those things make sense. They sound very, very realistic. But if you're romancing some copy for a radio or a television spot, still it's uh, that 20% or even 10% that Alex refers to. There's still a market for that. So you try to distinguish yourself. And I'm looking forward to being replaced here as the reader on Office Hours. I will say there's one other thing that I think is going to affect the voice performers out there, and that is you, you hear a lot of what I would call 
celebrity voices out there. You know, maybe it's somebody from a popular TV show and suddenly they're doing an ad for a pizza product. They're they're banking on the cachet that that voice has in a beloved character to get transferred to the product they're selling. So um, I I think that will still happen. I'm not sure that, you know, because an AI-generated voice doesn't have any inherent connection to it. But if there's a beloved character on TV and that actor or actress can bring that to the product, there's a lot of value in that. And those are some of the voice talents who end up making huge amounts of money. It's because you understand who that what that voice represents to you emotionally. And that's the hard connection for the AI stuff, I think, at this point to do. I'm not sure that'll continue, but at least right now. Mark Giuliani, had another thought? Yeah, well, it's it's to your point, Bill. Sam Elliott had that voice for years for Dodge and then Ford, I think. I can't remember which order it went in, but you heard that voice. You knew what was playing on the TV, whether you were looking at it or not. Um, and, and that's the same thing for branding of a lot of companies. So there's certain voices over the years that have just been associated with that. Will there be yeah. great AI voices in the future? Yeah, sure. Those will be associated with brands as well. But right now, we're not there yet. Yeah, I think I agree with all that. Let's move on to the next question. Fascinating discussion, though. Next voice, uh, excuse me, next uh, question, sorry, is Pedro Gonzalez from Oklahoma. How do I approach a job application for a creative photo-video position when most of my professional experience is in cybersecurity? My passion is photo-video. I've been shooting event photography and studio shoots on and off most of my life. Jason, start us off. Here's how. Uh, If you really like doing something, if you are passionate about it, do it for free until you're willing to get paid for it. Uh, I rolled the odometer on on a still camera before I was ever paid for a single still, and I loved it, and I would never trade that time or that effort for anything. What you need is a solid demo reel, and you need a solid portfolio, and your work should speak for itself, and until it does... Keep doing it for free and don't consider that a waste of time because undemonstrated passion is is just cerebral. Alex? Yeah, I mean, to, to Jason's point, a lot of things I do first, I do them for free because I don't want to have it over my head that I have to make money at it or that someone's going to be upset that they paid for something, didn't get what they paid for. And so I want the freedom to go out and do something and experiment and make mistakes and have it not be perfect. And it's as much for me as it is for them. It's for me in my head to not feel like I'm getting in that bind so that I can just experiment and be kind of relaxed and, and just kind of go through that process. So so I think that that is important um, as far as, um, you know, figuring that out, um, you know, for, for to, to, you know, to keep on doing that. I don't know anybody that looks, I guess, at a, if you're looking for an application for a job, I don't know who, who looks at a resume. What people look at is what you shot before and the videos that you shot and what you put together. Um, when I've looked at people who, who we've hired for as photographers and videographers, I don't think we knew anything about what they did before. I don't think we had any resume. I don't think there was any, you know, someone said that they were good at it and we saw a bunch of images and videos of what they did. And we were like, okay, well, this, seem, this person seems to know what they're talking about and we give them a shot. Um, uh, be willing to work with a crew, if, especially, you know, for very little, um, you know, to get in, to get your foot in the door. Um, there's a lot of people that'll wait, um, you know, for the right paying job and everything else to come through. And people like Jason and I will have drank your milkshake a long time ago. <laughs> you know, so, so you just need to know that, that we're pretty, you know, that, that, that's how we, you know, um, uh, that's, that's how this, this business tends to work. Uh, Courtney Gooden. 
Well, you might uh, <laughs> think about apprenticing so that Alex is not wiping that milkshake off his mustache there. Uh, apprenticing, that way you don't destroy the... Uh, the environment that you're going to be working in. If you offer yourself for free and you're competing against guys that are out there already getting paid for it, they're going to resent you. And um, that's not going to go over well if you have to work alongside of them anytime soon. So offer to apprentice for the guys that are working, even though you may know more than those people, they have the jobs. So apprentice for them for free or offer to do stuff for them for uh, cheap, you know, uh, work as a first assistant, pull focus, set up the gear, haul stuff for them. That'll get you known in the industry. And then they, that person who has the jobs can now refer jobs that they can't do to you. And referrals are a great way to break into the industry. Uh, find an established cinemat- video, videographer or somebody who, who works all the time, offer to apprentice for them. And then uh, they will hand off some of their jobs that they can't do to you once they're confident that you can do the job. And by apprenticing for them, you can prove to them that you know how to do the job. So that's a good way to break into the a crowded market. Uh, if if it's not a crowded market, sure, you can offer your services for free, but uh, watch out. Darn you, Alex, for bringing up milkshakes, because in the summer every year we used to drive from uh, Scottsdale to San Diego, and you'd always stop in Dateland, Arizona, and I'm really missing the date shakes in Dateland. (sighs) Next question. From Alex Lindsay in Novato, California, Alex asks, is anyone experimenting with high-quality texturing and lighting for USDZ? Jason Bache helps us out. Every time Mr. Lindsay says high quality, it makes me wonder if what I'm actually doing is high quality. Uh, but yes, I, I, I have certainly played around a lot with this. What I've been doing lately is trying to figure out kind of how to cheat the space so that it looks high quality and, you know, what can be done with lighting that, that um, you know, that that should be done with textures and, and vice versa. And how close can I get before the illusion gets broken? Alex, you want to... Uh, Elucidate. Yeah, I mean the biggest the biggest challenge we've had so far is is really just the application and then being able to export USDZ. Um, so far, uh, this has been the same for years now. Um, that uh, Substance has been the, the easiest like standalone application that isn't the modeling package, isn't the whole other thing. So Adobe Substance seems to be the easiest one. It's a little tricky to get to export it out, um, but but that's been the one that we've. But I'm just curious as to anybody else um, paying much attention to that pipeline. Um, you know, the, the one that when I talk to folks that are doing this a lot, um, most of them are saying that the best texturing and exporting right now is Houdini. Um, and so a lot of folks are, are you know, they, they're like, that's the one that has got the most features and the most setups and everything else to do this. Um, but we're still kind of experimenting with um, with that model. And it, it's going to be something that's more important. Of course, USDZ is the one of the USD and USDZ are the uh, are the primary uh uh, source code or sor- source platform for 3D going into the new Apple uh, Vision and most of Apple's um, uh, de- developments, and so those are that's what it's really supporting. And so a lot of us are trying to you know continue to figure out the best way to get it in. Um, we've done stuff. I did a whole set of animations in Motion from you know just from USDZ files, and so it can be done. Um, but uh, but getting that texture just right is still something that we've that we're still experimenting with. Let's move on to the next question. From Eric Hertz in Hartford, Connecticut. Eric wants to know, is there a desktop application to review NDI HX multicast? Will VLC work? 
Alex, what say you? I think the thing you have to always qualify with this is what what platform are you on? <laughs> so, so so what you know what are you uh, you know whether you're on a Mac or PC because there's different tools for different of these. I think VLC might work. Uh, I do know that if you even the free version of, of VMix will an OBS will allow you to see those uh, NDI. So OBS is a free application that runs on both. Mac and PC, and you should be able to view anything through there as well. Um, so that might be another one to look at. Uh, Courtney Gooden. Look at NDI tools, and there's a, there's a website called a- Avonic, A-V-O-N-I-C. Take a look there because uh, they uh, work a lot with NDI and NDI HX, which is the H.264 version that you're talking about that goes out over a network rather than over a local area network. It can go out over the internet. And um, they outline the comparison of, of the difference between NDI tools on Windows and the Mac. And you can see what uh, what the features are of NDI tools, which is, I think, a free application. Or maybe you, you can download it. Uh, I think there's a paid version of it, too. And I think VLC does have a uh, plug-in for it to allow it to decode NDI and display it. Uh, if it's H.264, you have to point it to the IP address of the incoming stream. There you go. Let's move to the next question. Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. Bill, your stream audio and video is nicely in sync as of late. For those of us who remember when sync appeared to have a mind of its own, how did you correct this and what do we see today? You're generous by describing it as have my sync having a mind of its own. It was horrible, and it would go out of sync often. I think Alex actually uh, nailed it. Uh, it was a replacement of my laptop. Uh, I had a top-of-the-line Intel MacBook from the last year they made them. It was well configured, but I think things have moved on so far. And what we do on office hours every day here is so sophisticated that I have a lot of background processes running and things like that. I'm driving three monitors. I've got uh, the teleprompter going. Uh, I'm usually l- listening to Discord on one side and the show on the other. And I've got, you know, multiple screens. I think I was just at the outside edge and overheating. And so Sync eventually suffered from that. I purchased a new laptop, so I spent some serious-ish money, and uh, I now have an M2 MacBook Pro that is full of memory and full of capability. And that, plus sitting down with Mickey on the day before I went live and having him measure my audio and put in exactly the right amount of delay in the system uh, seems to have corrected a lot of it, so hopefully... Hopefully it's better, and thank you all for your patience while I got there. Let's go to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael, many production companies offered contactless drop kits during the peak of COVID. Do you think this is a mainstay of production in the future, or was it a practice born of emergency? Jason, start us off. My memory of drop kits is that they stopped using them very quickly on set because people weren't doing them right. So dropping, you know, just doing your nose and then dropping it off wasn't really helping. They had to be administered, um, you know, by somebody who was doing them in, in, in you know, some useful, um, unique fashion that, that, yeah, people weren't doing. Um, I think it's both. So, it, yeah, it's a mainstay. They'll learn from what they did and... Um, uh, yeah, they'll bring it back if they need to. Alex? Yeah, I think that they're, I think we're still sending out kids. <laughs> so, so, so I think that they're, they're still out there. We don't send out as many as we did during COVID. Uh, I expect us to send, send out more as we move forward. Uh, one of the things that's happening is, is that 
um, physical events are, are, are still struggling, you know, so they're definitely back and people have backed away from virtual events as much as they had in the past. The problem is, is that the, you know, the physical events are 30 to 50% down. And as the, the production quality of the, of the digital events continues to get better, there's more people that are just going, why am I traveling for this? You know, and so I think that um, there's this kind of, uh, while there was this boomerang back to physical events, um, there's this this kind of uh, uh, drag towards digital events where you're going to see more and more of those. And, you know, people will either get better kits on their own or we'll still have to keep on sending these kits out. I also think that with as much commercial space that's available in most cities, a lot of us are having discussions with a variety of different people about what might be possible when it comes to building basically insert studios um, in a lot of these open spaces uh, where even if, what we're saying right now is like, just go to them temporarily. <laughs> like, you know, like you, when, when, when you rent this out again, we'll just move out. Like it's, it's a lightweight uh, building. I, I can move out in a week. So you can just give me a 30 day notice and I'll be gone if you find somebody else, knowing that they're probably never going to find somebody else. <laughs> You know, like, like they're not, the cities aren't going to recover from, from what we're talking about. So, so if you pick the right spaces, you can, you can go in there and probably be there for years. Um, and so, so I think that there's a, um, I think that you'll see those insert studios are probably more effective in many ways than sending kids. But the minimum we send to people are microphones because wow, do they sound horrible without them? You know, like, and, and, you know, like, and, and so I think that the first thing we do is send the thing that's most common is sending out some kind of like an MV7 or something like that. The next thing after that is sometimes a webcam. We're currently building the next generation of kits um, that we think we're going to be able to send out that'll be fairly small and compact and have three cameras and good audio and lighting and so on and so forth. And so um, hopefully by the end of the summer, we'll have a prototype out. And as that happens, I think that that'll be a, a pretty efficient kit. It'll still be about a $5,000 kit, um, but that rents out relatively inexpensively to ship it out. And it'll take about 10 minutes to put together. Courtney. Yeah, I think the contactless drop kits uh, will be fading out. The kits will still be around, but now they're going to come with an operator uh, who will set it up for the people and operate it because people uh, don't like to get involved in setting up and, and managing that stuff. Uh, plus, they like hand-holding. You know, they like to make sure there's somebody there that knows what they're doing to set it up and make sure they look good uh, and that can troubleshoot any problems that, you know, you you drop that drop kit off or you send it through the mail, you know, gosh knows what, what's going to come disconnected in transit and trying to troubleshoot that with a newbie that has never seen that drop kit before can be difficult to try and do it virtually where you can't see behind it or inside it. Uh, it gets it difficult. So I think uh, the fact that it was contactless for the virus non-spreading the virus purposes uh, will go away and the same kind of kits will go around. They'll be just as useful, but they'll come with a, an operator or a technician who will set them up and uh, make sure it's running correct. Let's go to the next question. Oh, I'm sorry. No, Alex Lindsay wanted to get down to the end of this, Alex. Yeah, for us, the big thing is cost. So what we find is that there's a there's a threshold. There's a couple different thresholds that we see with these kits. Is one is about three hundred dollars, another one is about two thousand dollars, and another one is about ten thousand dollars. <laughs> so so those are where people pay a lot of attention and they want it. In it. And so those kits are the ones at three hundred dollars, definitely, and oftentimes the ones at two thousand uh, dollars. We can't put a person down on the ground with it. We can maybe have them come set it up, um, but at the ten thousand, we're putting one or two people on the ground, you know, to to serve that. And those ones are generally high profile 
two-way connections that need a day of rehearsal and other things that are there. Um, you know, so those go into the ten to twelve, fifteen thousand dollars a unit um, because we have to because it's a highly technical thing. It takes lots of hours. Um, the smaller kits are, you know, the at two thousand dollars you're sending out a relatively close to a film kit. At three hundred dollars, you're sending out a very basic kit. But that three hundred dollar range is we could keep those kits as busy as we want to pretty off, you know, all the time. Uh, when you go over that, it seems to be, I don't know why, but mentally at $300, once you go over that, people are like, well, we'll see what we can do, you know? And so um, that's, that's where we've seen the number kind of uh, break off. Next question. Mandy Van Cleve from Monroe, Ohio asked, is anyone attending a drone show alternative to fireworks? These shows are being held in cities such as Los Angeles, Salt Lake City, Boulder, Lake Tahoe, in response to wildfires and other reasons. Alex, start us off. I'm not. Uh, I'm in a place where there's a lot of wind. There's not. There's no way they're going to do it. Put some drones up. You can barely get a, bear, a regular drone up, let alone a, a series of them. But I will say that I can't wait to see one in person. I've seen, I've been watching them on YouTube and they just look amazing. Um, and so I think that we're going to see more and more of these uh, go from, especially in places that are high, high fire um, uh, issues. Um, you're going to see more and more of these happen. Mitch Hill? My dog, thank you for the drone shows. There you go. Jason Beige. Um, I want to say it was 2015. I remember seeing um, during CES a spontaneous series of, uh, of you know, the Intel cluster. Just, I don't know if they were practicing or if they, this was some publicity stunt, but it was just right over the strip and it just all of a sudden just kind of erupted. And it was this grid that, that yeah, I'll never forget. And no, I haven't seen one since. Boy, was it cool. Ronnie Hofsoy, how are things in Norway? Well, I, I was thinking if, if to look at this question in another perspective. I, I see that a lot of new um, vendors in the market are trying to wrestle uh, in uh, into the event market where traditional pyro companies uh, have been. Do we think that the pyro companies actually are able to just switch from explosives uh, and uh, powder uh, designs into digital designs, which is a lot of 3D works. Do, do we think that these companies are actually hiring new digital people or how is this uh, actually turning out? Interesting questions. Courtney, you're next. I think there's probably a lot of turnkey situations by now that to run these drone shows that are probably available. You just have to invest in the number of uh, Intel drones or whoever makes them uh, for these specific light shows uh, to invest in all of them and keep them all charged up. But here's a tip. Unfortunately, it's too late to take advantage of this tip. I should have given this tip out yesterday. If you see that there's a drone show that's going to be in your neighborhood, go the day before, the night before the drone show, because that's when they'll be bringing out all the drones and setting them up and testing them and mapping them and making sure the show is going to work correctly. So, uh, you get a free show, and it won't be very crowded, and it'll be the night before. That's good advice. Alex, thoughts? And you might even see some crashes, <laughs> which would be more exciting than the regular show. A couple of them bouncing into each other. Yeah, the um, uh, I uh, most of the fireworks shows, to my knowledge, I mean, the, from folks I've talked to about it, um, are 
simulated. So they already have a lot of computer graphics built in. So they're simulating those as they figure them out. Like this is what the show is going to look like. Um, and then, and then, so they're, so I don't think that it, it may sound like they're just working with powder and so on and so forth, but the digital representations of that fire of those fireworks are very important. So for them to start, I, I would be blown away if they aren't paying attention to something that could possibly replace them and, and probably playing with those technologies to be able to hand that off. Okay, now you guys are forcing me. They're doing a drone show. They've canceled the fireworks show for Santa Barbara, which is just north of me up on the coast, and they're going to do a drone show instead. I've been trying to decide back and forth whether I wanted to try to go see an early one, and I think you are convincing me too. So I may be extra sleepy tomorrow when I open the show, but I'm going to try to talk my wife into packing the dog up since there will not be any dog-unfriendly explosions, I presume, and uh, go take a look at it. Ronnie? Yeah, you might uh, even uh, live stream it into office hours uh, or after hours. <laughs> yeah, do it, do it. Oh, I, I don't know what kind of coverage I'd get out there, but let 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 me see if I can talk her into it. All right. Let next question. Eduardo Augustine in Panama. I currently have an A10 Mini Extreme ISO and experiencing flickering issues due to cable distance. Should I replace for an A10 Mini Extreme ISO SDI? Ronnie is going to start us off. Well, as per uh, Office Hours uh, general suggestion, buy everything you can uh, until you can't afford it anymore. Um, but if you go the other way and, and try to use the equipment you have, I would uh, I would highly suggest you try to find, if this is a, a, a physical location where you are all the time, instead of just uh, being mobile, I would suggest you get uh, and take a look at the fiber HDMIs. We use a lot of those. Um, for for fixed installations, you can use the cheap ones. If you are mobile and, and uh, moving everywhere, you should have a, a little bit more tactical quality to those, and they are expensive. All right, Mark Giuliani. So we have probably a half a dozen of the little ATEMs, uh, minis, either both, some are SDI, some are HDMI. And the reasons we found for flickering are several. One is heat. If you have it on for a couple hours or a couple days before the show, that'll get it warm. Uh, keep your lights down, the LED lights you can turn down in the setup software. And the other reason we found that it flickers sometimes is we are using the wrong USB cable. If you use a light or Thunderbolt cable, that'll cause you some flickering after a while. So make sure you have the right cable and keep the heat down. Danny Law. Well, if you're going to consider the ISO model, I mean the SDI ISO model, you just have to make sure that your camera uh, gives out SDI. Uh, my my way of thinking is that I'll, I'll try to eliminate as much as of HDMI cable as possible. Just stay SDI all the way. Usually that gives me uh, better, better reliability. Alex Lindsay. Yeah, I have both. Um, I have the HDMI version at my house, and I, that's what I use for my desk, and that's what I run on a day-to-day basis. And then we run the Michael Krasny show on the SDI one. And I will say that the SDI one, the, the big advantage to it, in addition to using SDI, which will fix a lot of long runs, four outputs instead of two is amazingly good. <laughs> like it's an amazingly big jump of having those extra outputs um, available to you. Uh, so I would really strongly consider the SDI one. And I wouldn't, if I was going into production now, of course, the SDI one that didn't exist when I bought the HDMI version. Um, but I would strongly think about whether you want an SDI pipeline because it's just, a, it's just much easier to work with on a whole variety of levels. Let's go to the next question. 
Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. Has anyone on the panel tried or used AI and out painting, in painting, to create matte paintings for video? And how has it worked? Alex. Uh, I've worked on it. If you're starting with AI, so if you're starting with um, mid-journey and you say, I want to zoom out 2x, I want to zoom out 2x, you can get some really interesting effects there and you can get things that, that look pretty cool. Um, what I have found, though, is that the out painting and in painting that I've gotten from a variety of the tools that do those, uh, I, there's nothing I would use in, in, in production. Like that, I you know, it looks cool and it's like, oh, that looks great, but I wouldn't put it anywhere unless it was out of focus. So it's just, I just don't, haven't found that the quality is that high. Um, the one place that you do see quality high enough that's very close, and I think I would think about it as Photoshop. So the built in ones that, that you know, that the, a lot of the other lens, but Photoshop's out painting is relatively good. I still wouldn't use it for production, but it's really fun for, you know, like cool tricks, <laughs> you know, because it gets into a little bit of a repeating process um, that isn't quite the quality that I would want for it. But uh, if it was a little out of focus, I would use it all the time. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just that Photoshop works well. It just it just it doesn't quite have the quality on the outpainting that, that I would need to use it in real production. Courtney? Yeah, I just watched a video on this yesterday. I wish I could find the link to it. Uh where a guy used the the generative fill in Photoshop, which is a new AI tool that they have. So he would take uh, his phone or camera and shoot a 16 by 9 or, or the highest resolution he could for the center of the, of the film where the action is going to take place. And then to generate a still matte painting around that in Photoshop, and it can blend, it, it can take the, uh, you know, from the... Uh, uh, a still capture from the video that you're going to use as the insert with the live action in it into Photoshop and then have Photoshop generate the surrounding areas that match the background of that. And then you can add in and you can adjust, uh, you know, what you want to put. You want to put a lamp in, you want to, you know, decorate the room however you want uh, so that you can put a live action scene into this still surrounding area that is generated within Photoshop. And it looked pretty amazing. So look around on YouTube. There's a guy that's demonstrating using uh, this generative uh, fill for Photoshop as a matte painting technique. Alan Hawks. Yeah, well, along the lines of what Courtney just said, generative fill in Photoshop is, I've been exploring that quite a bit. I haven't really used it in terms of matte paintings, um, but it, we do a lot of background extensions. It's kind of a mainstay for ad production. And usually that has to be done by a really good retoucher or artist. And what I found now that uh, generative fill in Photoshop, it's only in beta, but we've been exploring it surprisingly good, but it's not going to get you all the way there. But what I found so far is it's getting you kind of on the green where uh, it gives you some quick options to explore and play with really quick. And then you have a refined artist go in and build on top of that. So it's not there yet, but it's definitely a valuable tool. Great. Thank you. And by the way, I haven't met you yet. I, you may have been here on the weekends, but I haven't seen you. So if you haven't been, welcome to the panel. And if you have been, I'm sorry I've missed you up to this point. I, I've go. been here on occasion, but thank you. Yeah. yeah well. and, and, you know, we'll see Alan more uh, on Tuesdays. And Tuesdays being our graphics day, Alan is um, going to be be showing up. But I have worked with Alan probably for almost 20 years on and off. Um, and uh, 
and he's one of the experts when it comes to when I need something in 3D and and uh, uh, for for the last 20 years I've I've I ping Alan I'm like hey what are you doing outstanding <laughs> uh, and so so um, so it's a really if you have questions if you see Alan on the on the panel and you've got questions about 3D and uh, about um, you know a lot of the, those types of things um, definitely feel free to to ask those questions he's he's a really incredible resource. Great. Well, again, welcome to the panel, at least as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Let's move on to the next question. From Brian Schwartz in Baltimore, Maryland. If a a graphic, excuse me, geographically distributed group of Swift programmers wanted to develop an iPad OS application, what is the best way to manage the development GitHub or some other tools? Let's start with Alex Lindsay. Yeah, I would. I, there's a couple things that I would think about. GitHub is the most common that way to can, you know to make basically check the code in and out, and that's probably I wouldn't probably experiment with it very much there. The second thing to do when you have a distributed group is you have to have a lot of regular meetings so you understand where everybody's going. You have to have set uh, you know really milestones of what you're trying to hit as you start to develop those. Who's doing what and when will they when and when will they complete those and what does it look like when it's complete? And then finally, you have to understand where people fit in to um, the, uh, where do people fit into the model? So if someone's working on the interface and somebody else is working on this part of the database and someone else is working on this, where they cross over, you just need to know how they're gonna interact and, and where those, and very clearly define those lines of intersection and try not to have, and the main, the hardest parts are people who are both working on the same thing. And that's where those folks are probably gonna need to talk almost every day, if they're, especially if they're full time. They're gonna, a lot of times, we have them creating, uh, We in the past, we've had them create a, basically a virtual office, so to speak, where they're on Zoom or Hangouts or something like that all day. Just They just leave it on and they're talking to each other while they're coding. Um, it's really easy for them to get off. We can have people be very asynchronous when they are, when they have clear clear lines of demarcation where one can work for a long time without having to, they only have to worry about where they're plugging into each other. But where things don't work as well, in my experience with with um, asynchronous is when they're both working on the same code base. Um, it gets very, very hard for one to work for. Now, sometimes you can you can get into a pattern where they work back and forth like that, but we haven't seen that to be as successful. Uh, Jason Beach. Yeah, if your programmers are in fact professionals and not some plucky group of open source, like, you know, kind of amateurs who just want to dabble in this, everything Alex said is exactly right. And I've seen that go wrong 10 times for every time it's gone exactly right. And I, I don't think there is a perfect formula, but um, yeah, pretty much exactly the lines of demarcation and the basically forcing people to have uh, adjacent suites by putting them in Zoom and letting them code together. Alex, you want to do a follow-up? Yeah, the one thing I'll say is that there are a lot of, you can try to find people individually, but the company that we've worked with the most that has been the most successful is TopTal. Um, TopTal is our top talent. And you have all the programmers are all used to this. <laughs> like this is what they do. And they work out of Bulgaria or they work out of Ireland or they work out of whatever, but they're used to being plugged into these teams and working from their homes. And you'll see that they have a whole culture of that stuff that, that they tend to lock into very quickly. And sometimes you'll go through a couple programmers pretty quickly and go, oh, that's not going to work. And then you can just keep on working with the company to swap them in and out until you find the ones that you need. But a lot of times you want to look for a company like that, whether it's that one or not. Um, but that's the one that we've been the most successful for when we when it comes to outsourcing programming. Let's go to the next question. Adrian Watkins from Wellington, New Zealand. Which is the mic Alex is using on holiday? Alex, what are you on? 
I'm on a DPA 4066. Um, so this is a, a headset mic um, that's here that I've had. This one I probably had for a decade. <laughs> so I, uh, and when I first started using office hours, I, I used it here um, and uh, uh, it works pretty well. It's nice and compact. I have this and I also have a Countryman H6. Depending on where I'm at, I find that one sounds better than the other. It just depends on the environment. And I'm not sure it's, I haven't quite figured it out, but sometimes I go, oh, this one doesn't sound as good. And so I'll switch over. So, so anyway, those are the things that I kind of, uh, um, uh, think about there. Uh, so yeah, so it's, it's, a. It, I think it's working pretty well. Does it sound good on your end? It sounds yeah. actually really good. Yeah. 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 And it's got yeah, that so nice, it's, it's, it's so close well. to your mouth that you're getting the benefit of the signal to noise ratio of proximity. So not much background. There's a little yeah. bit of stuff, but not horrible. So yeah. let's go to the next question. From Jonas Dottel in Stuttgart, Germany. What is your biggest fear and reason to not do remote production yet? Ronnie, help us out. Mainly, mainly the there are two types of clients. Uh, we have those clients that are really into uh, remote production and and uh, are, you know, just go. Uh, and then we have the other that are kind of no, let's do it the old way. Let's meet up in a meeting room and uh, and have a coffee and and speak together. So um, we we uh, in northern Norway we have huge the, the distances and the people normally have to fly in. So we have the uh, we have uh, good arguments for having them uh, uh, do the digital. So we are in transition, trying to move more and more clients over to digital remote productions. Uh, Courtney. If you're doing it professionally, the my main fear would be getting paid. Uh, if you have a client that you've never worked with before and they're in a foreign country and you're emoting in, uh, you don't have a lot of leverage. Uh, you know, they don't, they not support your collection services or... Uh, you know, banking system, et cetera. And it may be hard to collect if they turn out to be deadbeat. So I'd worry about that and go with an established company, you know, then you wouldn't have anything to worry about, but that would be my main fear. Alex. Yeah. Yes. The, the um, I mean, the, the big thing is we do a lot of remote. It's, it's not, it depends on how you define remote. So we still have a physical environment where this all happens. Um, we have uh, the, we have a physical environment that, that we're doing the production, but the guests are usually not there. And most of the production staff is usually not there. So it is a remote event doing it into the cloud. Um, my big thing is audio. <laughs> like, you know, audio is very tricky. And it also, it depends on how long you have to leave the stuff up. A lot of times I'm working on shows where all of our hardware is configured over weeks. And oftentimes the week of the event, it's all been put in and it's all on and it's all working and we're using it all the time and we're tweaking things. And that starts to add up when we do it in the cloud. So, so for us, you know, the, we start looking at how many, how many processors we have on, how long will we leave them on? Um, and we do do some events that are completely in the cloud. Um, a lot of the ones that I work on specifically, I keep, you know, a lot of it in hardware, uh, for a variety of reasons of just, um, some stability issues as well as cost issues. If I'm leaving a lot of stuff on for a long time. Courtney touched on the thing that comes to my mind always, which is it gets too international. How much extra work am I going to have to do to figure out, uh, like in America, I know if I I'm at this threshold, remote, a 1099 I mean, I, I think, goes out, who am I, I think sending things out? What I will say is there's a huge jump from remote to international. Remote is 
almost all the remote we do is all just in the United States. Like we're, we're not, we're not doing stuff for folks in Europe or Japan or anything else. We're doing yeah. tons and tons of, most of our work is all remote. Uh, but, but it doesn't mean we have to go out of the country or even work with companies smaller than fortune 500, which is mostly our work. So, so, you know, so the, um, so I think that, uh, indefinitely, if I don't know folks, I mean, as a live producer, as soon as the event's done, you have no leverage. And so if, if we talked about this a little bit yesterday, but if I haven't worked with you at least once and usually twice, and we don't have a master service agreement, I'm not going to give you any credit, you know, like, and so you're going to need to, I mean, and, and if I work, if you're, if you're from Hollywood uh, and we haven't worked with you before, you will pay 14 days in advance, or I won't even, I won't even p- pick up a team, you know, like, you know, like it's, you know, so, and as we've always gotten paid, but the, the amount of work that we've had to do to get paid from some uh, folks in, in the LA region, we'll just say has, has definitely created, has said, if, if I haven't done this before and we haven't ha- had gotten along, you're going to pay me not only in advance, but a long time in advance, because I'm not really considering it a real job until I have all the money in the bank <laughs> so, so because, uh, because it's been so, it's, it's been so hectic. And, but that's the only city that we are so, so specific about. I just I'd watch out for as, Florida too. You know, LA is not the only place where crooks land. <laughs> well, and as production gets more globalized, I wish there were services that could really help with this kind of things. Make sure your reporting is correctly mixed. You know, I've heard stories of people who move to another country and all of a sudden we couldn't work because we couldn't get the work visa, so they can't participate like they normally would because of problems on their end. So it's it gets complicated. Let's go on to the next one. We're not going to solve this in in five minutes. John Fisher from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Is there a good plug-and-play 4K webcam for enterprise environments where third-party software can't be installed? Courtney? I think the Brio will work without a third-party software. Uh, it's they're sometimes getting a little hard to find right now. The newest 22, the Logitech Brio 4K. Uh, if you look here on Amazon, the 2022 version is not in stock. Um, it says temporarily out of stock, but you can still get the 2017 version for 127 bucks. So uh, you might look there. That's that's a good choice. And uh, unless you're, you know, it'll work as a basic webcam, but you may not get any of the bells and whistles if you're not using the uh, the overlay software that they have that plugs in for whatever whatever type of operating system you're running on. If it's a corporate environment where they don't let you install anything, that might be a problem, but you will at least get an image out. Next question. Eric Hers in Hartford, Connecticut. Is there a way to get the Zoom WebEx or Microsoft Teams program, what the audience sees, rather than individual sources via NDI? I don't want to pull these into vMix OBS to do this. Alex, take it away. In Zoom, you can do the... Basically, um, it will do the, uh, for some reason, I just lost the um, active speaker. So it, it's not going to necessarily get jump to gallery or, or jump to the different things that you spotlit or other things like that. But active speaker will be cutting back and forth between folks that are talking. And so I think in Zoom, you can do that. I don't know how you would do that in, in other platforms. Let's go to the next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, how does the USA cable coverage of the Tour de France compare to the NBC Peacock coverage and the European coverage? Uh, Alex. 
normally what you're going to see, I don't know how it compares, but normally you're going to see a lot of those feeds look very similar when, you know, in there because there's usually a global feed. So what they're providing is one general uh, pool feed that is the, the shots that they're going to use. And then what you're going to see is how they distinguish themselves is usually the graphics that sit over top of it, the commentary and the stuff that goes on in between. But the actual shots of the, of the, of the game itself is usually a set of pool cameras because it would be too complicated to have too many individual cameras out there. So um, where you want to look at it, I don't know which one is there. I don't really uh, watch Tour de France, but but the um, but I think that the uh, where you're going to see when you're comparing them is compare the graphics, compare the commentary, compare the the setups uh, for those commentators is, is where you're going to see the difference. Not in the actual coverage, which is probably very very similar. Let's get to the next question from Robert Shoji in Los Angeles. Bill, could you tell us the specs of your new MacBook Pro? Thanks. Yeah, really, basically, I got an M2 Max. It's got 64 gigabytes of memory in it, and uh, I just go with a 2-terabyte hard drive because I don't really store a lot of things on here. I generally do NVMe drives on the outside to store stuff. So I went reasonably far, but not all the way because it can get really expensive. I think I was up in the neighborhood of just under $4,000 by the time I got this whole thing configured, and I figured that was enough. So that's where I am. Let's go to the next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. How is SIGGRAPH sh- shaping up? How many folks will be on the scene in the Los Angeles area, and what technologies and products will be most interesting? Alex, what are the plans? We had a great meeting yesterday, and, and I think I'm pretty excited about where we're going with it. So if you're still interested uh, for the next week and a half or so, we're still going to have it open so you can still sign up for SIGGRAPH. Um, I think we have right five or six right now for the ground crew, if I remember correctly. Um, and uh, and so we're, we're going to see uh, how many people want to show up. But we have a booth. So we're working with Drexel University. So we're actually going to be able to have a booth. And then we're working with uh, some folks at SIGGRAPH to, um, to get some internet in there. So we're going to uh, we're really excited because we may be able to have the Zoom latency, very, very low latency connection um, there um, to that booth. And that's going to extend a lot of things. Of course, we're going to have the live view as well. And there's a lot of things that are stretched out. So there's the expo and then there's um, there's a lot of emerging technologies. I think this is going to be a really exciting uh, event to cover. Um, and so we're going to have the booth. We're going to have the live view. We may have some wireless uh, connections to those as well. So I think that it's going to be, um, an, again, having that booth space uh, is going to take what we've been doing in these shows and step it up another notch. And so I'm um, so really excited about it. So, so stay tuned. And we're going to try to drag Alan on for those shows to give his, his two cents uh, while, we're, while we're doing the Seagraph stuff. Yeah, so. Excellent. Well, thank you all for spending part of your 4th of July with us. We really, truly appreciate your time. Uh, tomorrow, don't forget, we're doing Demystifying the Microphone. So uh, microphones will be the topic of our audio Tuesday. On Thursday, Matthew Semeglia of Altheon is coming back to bring us up to date on the changes there. And Friday, what makes a studio? Jason and I are going to sit here and we'll help facilitate that. Uh, we appreciate everybody who comes here every day. We thank you, the audience, our producers who come and put your questions in that drive this show. We truly appreciate all the panelists who join us every day to provide their expertise to things. And definitely our backstage crew who comes up from all around the world, from all sorts of countries, all around the world and helps us understand this 
brand new world of digital production. Our Tlaloc Traversal today, 120,534 miles. That's 193,980 kilometers. That is more than eight, uh, 954 million bananas laid end-to-end for scale and 4.8 times around the earth if you're carrying it through that way. Thank you all for being here. We'll see you all tomorrow. Don't forget, After Hours starts right now. Uh, don't forget to join us for a show workshop today at 3 p.m. Eastern. Oh, okay. Exploding bananas today. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of exploding stuff. bananas for scale. Set one off and the whole string goes off. Don't put it in the freezer. Bananas get too ripe. Happy Watch this time, my beer. Duck. I need an ice cream. 